So, Amelia, you know, today's interview with Christy Ironside is about money and welfare in the post-war Soviet Union. And I was, there were so many things about this I had no idea about and was struck by, but I, I wanted to ask you, what, what do you think about money? What's your relationship with money? <laughs> That's a funny question. Uh, I would like more of it, but I also never want to have to think about it again. Um, I would definitely say that my relationship to money is a love-hate relationship. I think that our, um, the society that we live in is pretty interesting because money, it's not symbolic for resources anymore. It is resources. It is the same thing. You can't, you can't, uh, separate the two or divorce the two. And so if you don't have money, you don't eat, you don't get healthcare, you don't have a house over your head. You cannot, you literally cannot survive without money. And so I think, um, in that way, this kind of, what like started off as kind of an abstract concept has become incredibly important and concrete. And I really resent that. I don't like it. <laughs> I would really like to be able to live without money, but that is not the world we live in. Yeah. And that, I think that's one of the things that, that struck me about this interview with Christy is that Soviet people had a variety of different relationships with money, depending on where they were in society, where they lived. Um, because so much of Soviet society, if you were an elite, for example, and Christy points this out, that you got your the things you needed through other means, through connections, through access. And money was for those people, not as, I mean, it was important, but not as important. It wasn't a life or death situation. Whereas other people in Soviet society, particularly those who lived in the in rural areas, uh, money was in, far more important for them. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting difference between, between this, our contemporary society that we live in now and what uh, was previously Soviet society is just like, you know, cause money is everything now for us. Like if you want to be corrupt, you need money. If you want to do good things for the world, you need money. It's everything. There's, there's not really a whole lot of other ways of acquiring power, wealth, goods, anything. Yeah. Yeah. And, and things are, are, and this is what a lot of people who talk about neoliberalism and critique neoliberalism is that everything is becoming monetized. Everything is on a subscription model now, or at least more and more and take like spot something like Spotify. Whereas before you, you bought music, you owned it. And now you're just kind of perpetually renting it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's exactly right. I think that the subscription model is particularly interesting because it's this continuous monetization of goods over the long term. And with the technology, like with tech on the rise, with everything being, you know, a chunk of code, essentially, like 90% of the stuff that I have to buy in my life is just a piece of code. And, and you can monetize that in such a unique way. Кто вечерком с милой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели, и при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Well, hello and welcome to the SRB podcast. In each episode, we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Gilry, and I'm joined by Amy Parler. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks. And if you'd like to join those ranks and support the podcast, please go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to srbpodcast.org and hit that Patreon button and join the table of ranks. So, Amy, why don't you introduce Christy for us? Uh, so, today's interview is with Christy Ironside. She is an assistant professor of history at McGill University, where she studies and writes about the political, economic, and social history of modern Russia and of the Soviet Union. Her new book is titled, a Full Value Ruble, The Promise of Prosperity in the Post-War Soviet Union. And that book is published by Harvard University Press, and it was released in 2021. 
This is Christy Ironside. All right, Christy. Well, it's, it's wonderful to talk to you again and now about your new book, uh, A Full Value Ruble, The Promise of Prosperity in Post-War Soviet Union. So just to start, why don't you briefly introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Christy Ironside. I'm an assistant professor of Russian history at McGill University in Montreal, Canada. So um, you have this book, and and this is this is based on your dissertation. Is that correct? This is so the full value ruble, the promise of prosperity in post-war Soviet Union. So what? How'd you get interested in this topic? Because there's not a lot of people who are doing political economy of of anything in regard to the Soviet Union or Imperial Russia nowadays. Totally by accident, to be honest. Uh, it's not actually what I initially proposed that I wanted to do for dissertation when I came into my PhD. I mean, I knew I wanted to do something on living standards that I did know. I thought I was going to do something on the Soviet Union and Czechoslovakia because consumption and living standards changed when they had access to these markets, to, the, to more industrially advanced societies. And this is what I thought I was going to do. But then I changed my mind because there was already somebody else in my program who was working on Czech-Soviet stuff, as it turned out. Rachel Applebaum wrote a great book on Soviet-Czech relations. Um, and so I thought, maybe I'm not going to do that anymore. And then in my second year of my PhD, I took a class on the politics of everyday life that was taught by my advisor, Sheila Fitzpatrick and Leora Auslander. And I was sort of fishing around for paper topics. I wasn't really sure what I wanted to write my paper on for that class. And I had recently reread The Master and Margarita. And there was this kind of tiny detail in the book that I fixated on, which is that the master is able to quit his job and go off and be a writer because he wins 100,000 rubles in the Soviet lottery. And I thought, this is a very strange detail, but uh, but what? How is that even possible in a, in a Soviet society, in a, in a socialist system, when you're not even supposed to have money to begin with and you're not supposed to become rich? You're certainly not supposed to you know, spend 100,000 rubles on quitting your job and going off to be a writer. So I thought what I would do is I'd write a paper on the lotteries and on lottery winners, what they did with their money. And that paper really just left me with a lot more questions and answers about what money meant in the Soviet Union and the social society. And so I went and talked to Sheila about it. She encouraged me to sort of just go with it, see where it took me. So I ended up kind of going down the rabbit hole of what money was in the Soviet Union uh, from winning the lottery. Yeah, I mean, this is this is this is what's great, because you're actually dealing with something, i.e. money in the Soviet system, that's a bit of an enigma, I think. So given that, so what what is the story that your book is trying to tell about post-war life? So the book uh, is really trying to tell the story of how the Soviet government tried to use money to deliver on the promise of higher living standards in the Soviet Union, and, and more specifically, how it tried to give money purchasing power after the Second World War. Um, I'll come back to this in a little bit, but essentially during the war, the value of money is next to nil. It's rendered all but useless. And the Soviet government's forced to print billions of rubles, not only to balance the budget um, and to keep the economy functioning, and in the meantime, people are relying on all kinds of non-monetary means of exchange, on barter and surrogate currencies and things like this. Um, in, in other words, the purchasing power of money is all but eviscerated. Uh, this has the Soviet government very worried coming out of the war. And I show how after the Second World War, after 1945, that really even in the last years of the conflict, when they're pretty concerned, you know, they think that this is not a good situation, but they're quite confident they're going to come out on top in this conflict. They try to give money real value. So what they're trying to do is deliver upon a promise that they'd already articulated before the war, this idea that money would have purchasing power, people would be able to buy more of the good things in life, and that they could live a prosperous life under Soviet socialism. So this is the fundamental story that the book's trying to tell. What, what was the, the, the Bolshevik attitude toward money, and then how, how did it function in Soviet society? I mean, it's, it's really, uh, it changes a lot over time. So there is this stereotype that money didn't matter in the Soviet Union and the Bolsheviks didn't care about it at all. And this really only holds if you're looking at the period immediately after the revolution. So, you know, right around October 1917, you have people like Yevgeny Preobrazhensky, the radical Bolshevik economist, who argued that you should just print so much money, just use the, he actually says we should use the printing press like a machine gun to strafe the bourgeois order. It's a very sort of Bolshevik statement. But he, he argued that you could print so much money that this would inflate it so much that it would give it no value. And then this would sort of set the, you know, reset the system, clean the slate. And then they could move after that toward a material economy. So Marx had predicted that after the revolution, money is going to no longer have any use and you're going to be able to institute a material economy. 
So the Bolsheviks think they need to do this immediately after the revolution. But this doesn't last very long. So all of that kind of revolutionary enthusiasm for getting rid of money, by 1921, it's gone. <laughs> and that strategy has been completely abandoned. And what they start to do, and this becomes a, an obsession that they're going to come back to again and again, is they try to stabilize the currency and give it real value. So you have a currency reform in 1924. It takes just, it, Lenin's involved sort of toward the beginning, but then he dies, obviously. It takes place more or less after he's uh, dead. But um they try to stabilize the currency. They put it on the gold standard. They, they sort of, you know, get rid of, um, you know, take many zeros off the ruble and all of this because it's become so inflated. Um, and one of the things that you see happening around this time period, so around the middle of the 1920s, as Stalin's coming to power, Stalin consistently portrays himself as one of the few Bolsheviks who understands that money has use value for the Bolsheviks, for the Soviet economy. Um, and he actually has a lot of sometimes kind of hilarious arguments with people in which he says, you know, like those people who believe that we can get rid of money and have a materialist economy, you know, they're all idiots. Um, he calls them idiots a lot, actually. Uh, in fact, he actually at one point says that people who are arguing against the use of money right now are Don Quixote's like, tilting at windmills. Like this is just, this is not your, this is not your enemy right now, essentially. Um, and so he argued that this was one of the few things that the Bolsheviks could use, one of the few capitalist instruments of the economy that they could use until they got to the very edge of communism, up to like the last stages of socialism. So there isn't really much of an argument from the Stalin period onward that they're going to use money. This isn't, you know, they, they actually do care a lot about this. There is no real attempt to go back to getting rid of money. Um, so they, they have this kind of complicated relationship to it because they know from Marx they need to get rid of it, but it's not really clear when or how. And they're just figuring this out over time. They're trying to figure this out. And, um, and, and what I argue in the book is that they come to the conclusion that they need to use money more fully. They need to use it, you know, use its last sort of drop of potential towards socialist construction to give it more value in people's hands and purchasing power, more value in terms of incentives uh, so that they can get to the point where they have the state of abundance that they need in order to get rid of money altogether. So it's going to move the revolutionary economy forward. You know, I, it's, it's weird because I'm, I'm trying to like think about how, because one of the problems that, you know, in my kind of lay understanding of, of Soviet, the Soviet economy and, and the way it w worked is they have prices are you know highly controlled right they're not floated in a market and so i would imagine like one of the problems is is how do you balance the ability to you know maintain certain prices which are artificial sometimes to the point where they're so low that it costs more to produce yes. than to actually to <laughs> with, actually with purchase things, actually yes <laughs> yeah and so and and then you have to control that with the value of money so how do they like, so how does it function in, in actual daily practice? So they, by the late 1930s, what they do in terms of sort of macroeconomic considerations is they're constantly trying to balance the population's money, income, and expenses. So they have this, without getting into any of the details, and honestly, I'm not an economist, so I don't really crunch the numbers myself. I sort of come at it from political economy and economic thinking. Uh, but what they, what they try to do is they sort of they want to release enough goods into circulation, enough consumer goods into circulation to balance out what they're paying out people in wages. And they have this very problematic concept, honestly, of this balance, because they think that, well, there's this many goods in circulation and there's this much money and this will kind of even itself out. This will balance out because they don't want there to be left too much money in circulation, because then that does odd things to prices in the collective farm markets where prices are not fixed, where prices are fluctuating and are much more dependent upon supply and demand. They're trying to get this perfect balance between the goods and money that's available to purchase the goods with. And this is very complicated. It's incredibly complicated because the amount of money that they're paying out to people, that is a lot more fluctuating. Um, people earn peace rates for the most part. Most of the industrial workers earn peace rates. Their incomes go up and down quite dramatically. There's all kinds of ways that people supplement their income. So these kind of perfect calculations that Soviet economists are doing where everything makes sense on paper. There's this mass of goods. There's the same amount of money that will be spent on that mass of goods. It just falls apart at the granular level again and again. And they end up having more money than goods to spend on fairly consistently for the entirety of the Soviet Union's existence. Yeah, that that's my understanding is that, that you know, and I, I think I've even said this in lectures when I start lecturing on, on the 60s and 70s, is that, you know, it, it, 
there was a there was a flood of money like in terms of individual households they had money but they didn't have a lot to buy with it <laughs> um and so how did what was do you have a sense of what the the attitude towards money amongst just regular people yeah i think it really depends on who you are in soviet society and, and this is one of the things that i have argued in the book i think one of the reasons that that stereotype that money didn't matter was so pervasive especially in western scholarship is that you know People went over to the Soviet Union and they circulated amongst elites. And for elites, money didn't matter all that much because it's not how they got stuff, right? They got stuff using their personal connections. They had, you know, if you were in the party at a high enough level, you got your deliveries of food, you got all kinds of non-monetized perks, and you had access to special stores, you had access to special prices, discounts, things like this. So for those people, money mattered a lot less. But for ordinary people, a lot of the time, money mattered because it was a sort of wad of, of potential that you could do nothing with. You couldn't actually go into a store consistently and buy something with it. Um, if you lived in the countryside for you know well until the 1960s, a lot of the time you couldn't even buy things in money because the stores didn't take money. They took partially payment in kind. So even if you were given money, it had less sort of fungibility in the countryside than it did in the cities. And in the cities, depending on who you were, you know, you were likely to buy most of your food and goods at a store that was associated with your factory. If your factory wasn't as important as others, it might not get those deliveries. You know, it might, things might get kind of pilfered and given to the workplace elites, things like this. The point is that you couldn't predictably, reliably use your money every day in the way that, you know, we go into a grocery store for the most part, just go and buy something. And sometimes they don't have what you're looking for, but most of the time they do. And you don't put that much thought into it. I think for a lot of people, money was just this kind of, you know, accumulation of broken promises on the part of the Soviet government, truly. Um, and, and you see it in a lot of the letters that people wrote. I mean, I came I came to this project a lot more as a social historian, and then I kind of afterwards, it went more in a policy, political economy direction. So I read a lot of letters, tons of letters from people. And people would write in and they would do these incredible calculations, like sometimes just a lot of math. You'd be like, I get paid this and it costs this much for milk and it costs this much for that. How am I supposed to make ends meet on the salary that I make when they don't have this and I have to go to the market where I have to pay three times as much to a peasant for this? You know, people, people were really aware that this was a struggle. It was a daily struggle to spend this money, to reliably, predictably spend this money. You know, you have this, um, I mean, the title of the book is Full Value Ruble, and this is an idea that the, an aspiration that the government had so what what does a full value ruble mean? So this is their term that they use all the time in the documents. So um, in Russian, it's polnitsany, so literally full value. It doesn't translate all that that well into English. I went sort of back and forth on this, and my editor at one point was like, oh, I don't know if I like the title, but then like the marketing team liked it, and so we sort of decided it was fine. And then one of the reviewers said, oh, it's actually a very good translation. Anyway, uh, but it's the idea that it's a ruble with purchasing power, so with real value, as economists would say. Um, it's not actually a very complicated concept. It, the idea is essentially that you should be able to work hard at your job, you know, be paid in money for your honest labor, and then take those full value rubles to a store where you can spend it on what you need or you want, or put it into a bank account and save up toward a big ticket consumer good that you want. So like a a car or a holiday or a motorcycle or something like this. Um, so this is the idea. This is kind of the core basic idea that the Bolshevik authorities after the Second World War, in my argument, come to. This idea that money is going to deliver upon this, this nice, prosperous, secure, stable life. Um, and that full value ruble, it's not just about its purchasing power. It's also about sort of sense of security. And so one of the things that I, that I look at in the book is the various payments that people receive. So I look at minimum wages. I look at um, pensions in particular. And, and this is a big deal because people had truly miserable pensions coming out of the Second World War. They were utterly just gutted by inflation. And there's lots of inequalities in terms of who actually can get a pension in the Soviet Union before 1956. Um, so the idea is that people are going to not only get a pension, but their pension is something that's going to allow them to live a good life. It's not going to just be a small sort of symbolic amount of money that they can barely live on. It's going to be enough to live on. They're going to be able to spend it. But of course, one of the things that ends up happening over the course of the time period that I'm looking at is as they keep giving people more of these money payments, so raising the minimum wage, you know, reducing taxes, things like this, giving people pensions, they're introducing ever more money into circulation that isn't backed by goods. 
So the way they would describe it as in, in their political economic concepts, they would describe this as uncovered money. They're introducing more uncovered money into circulation all the time. And then that has all of those knock-on effects of throwing off the balance of income and expenses, um, throwing off the, uh, the, the balance of money in circulation and goods, things like that. It seems one of the things just from, from listening to you, um, the idea, the, the role of money uh, seems to be quite different than, say, how I imagine money how it works in, say, you know, in the United States, so in a capitalist society. So, for example, it sounds like their idea of money is not about providing survival, right? So here in the, in the United States, if you don't have money, you have to, you have to ha make enough money to survive, right? And in the Soviet case, it sounds like the survival is not the goal of money. The goal of money is to provide the means of acquiring beyond survival, I, I would argue that one of the reasons that they turned to money, I, I do argue this actually in the book, <laughs> is that they need it as an incentive. And they keep coming back to this, um, you know, especially when they're thinking about things like tax policy. There's very complicated discussions going on from the middle of the war through when they try to abolish income taxes in the late 1950s, early 60s, about how to set taxes at levels that will not take so much off people's earnings that they will be incentivized to not work hard. They, they, they understand very intuitively that they need to pay people money, otherwise they won't work because they're not, it's a very basic realization, but you know, they tried doing that in, right after the revolution. They tried to equalize people's payments. They tried to pay workers in, in material goods and, and it was a disaster. People stopped working. And of course, the other thing is, you know, they have not accomplished communist consciousness yet. People are not working because they're self-motivated because they understand that this is in their interest. Not yet. They're in the socialist transition. So during that transition, they need to pay people in money. Um, and that's one of the fundamental reasons that they hold on to it. Um, that sort of go ahead. Yeah. So, so the, I mean, this is kind of what, what I was thinking. Um, this idea that if you don't pay people to work, so I mean, as opposed to like them working to survive, right? I mean, I, I don't really. This is the attitude I don't. This is the attitude that seems so so hard for me to grasp. Is because. You know, if if you don't pay them, they won't work. Now, granted, one can make a general statement about that in, in all in most places. But, you know, if you don't, you know, in a capitalist society, if you don't work, you don't eat, you don't have shelter, you don't have the basic goods of, of, of survival. So is the attitude of like, not working because you're not being paid enough? Is that because you have there's a certain sense of security already? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. They, they talk about this a lot, about how in the Soviet Union, you don't have to worry about living in poverty because certain things are provided for you. But the truth is that that's actually not always true, right? Lots of things were paid for. I mean, even education was not 100% free. It was mostly free, but there were some fees and things like this. Um, and if you were a collective farmer, you were all but shut out of the social welfare system prior to the 1960s and the 1960s. So there were lots of people who were kind of cast out of this system uh, who were totally on their own in terms of uh, in terms of paying for things. If you were also, another example would be people who were in the gray economy, it's not quite the black economy, but, you know, the uh, the people who worked as maybe uh, a nanny for a family or something like this, who are sort of off of the system. There are lots of people like this who did need to work to survive. Um, and it was very easy to fall through the cracks in this system. And, and that was one of the things that kind of blew my mind a bit when I was looking into the pensions. There were tons of people who wrote in and said, you know, well, I kind of worked for a bit, but then I moved around a bunch. I spent some time in prison. Like I didn't end up having the full stage, the period of time, like the labor period you needed to get a pension. And for a long time, those people were completely cut out and, and essentially had to figure out a way of surviving on their own. So, so the propaganda and the reality, there's a big gap between the two there. Imagine <laughs> that. that. Everything <laughs> the Soviet Union shocker, right? Yeah. Um, so there's that. But, but at the same time, you know, if you were an industrial worker, if you were somebody who was in, in that way, there was probably more of a sense of security than, than in other places where, you know, if you, you could be moved to a slightly like uh, less strenuous job. You were given your housing, you paid, not really rent, you pay like housing dues, right? Um, so there were ways, there, there was a there was a social welfare, the social sort of, um, what's the term I'm looking for, the uh, the safety net 
for for people who were in the system, but lots of people weren't, and and those people were often cast out onto kind of the the cold, hard, muddy economy that they didn't quite acknowledge existed, which is you know second economy, black market, things like that. Right, right. No, it's it's an important point to make because that you know as you as you rightly said. You know, to emphasize that you know, if you were on a kohos, you were you didn't get pensions until what sixty four or something. So they they change the law in sixty four and um, and they bring them in, but it's it's not on the same level as workers. They get much much more miserly pensions, <laughs> and uh, and they get, they don't get brought up for a while. They they raise them later, but it's not by much. Um, they're they're quite hesitant to give pensions to to collective farmers in part because at that point they, I mean, also with, with collective farmers, they're always concerned that they're making money on the side. This is always the thing that they worry about. And then they are, they're, they're not wrong about this, but it doesn't mean that they're making so much money that they don't still need pensions. Um, for a long time, it was really hard for them to disaggregate peasants from the household. So to figure out who did what, who worked how much, because they understood the, the peasant household as the unit of the economy in the countryside. So it presented all kinds of complications in terms of thinking about the pension as being something that is your reward for a lifetime, an individual lifetime of honest labor. It, it was a big problem for them. So what did prosperity mean? I actually don't think that prosperity in the Soviet Union was very, very different than it was elsewhere. Um, I, and I think it's important to remember in the period that I'm looking at here after the Second World War, this is the moment of post-war prosperity for Europe and North America too, right? You have expanding consumer opportunities. You've got sort of unparalleled economic growth. Things just seem like they're, they're going up, up, up. And the Soviet Union is not typically written into that story. You don't really see a lot of references. They're not totally out of it, but um, usually it's the, the, you get a few mentions of sort of, well, consumerism starts to be more of a consumer culture and like, you know, life expectancy kind of goes up a little bit, things like this. But but I would argue that they were trying to do their own version of this, this project as well, this idea of post-war prosperity. Um, I would say that, you know, it, it fundamentally boils down to material comforts, increasing consumer satisfaction, you know, being rewarded for your labor, enjoying a kind of stable and predictable economic life. That, that's really what it came down to. Um, the one thing I will say that was different in the Soviet context is that uh, prosperity wasn't about ever increasing wealth. It, it wasn't this idea that you know, that you have in a place like the United States, just to use the sort of classic you know, counterexample. But you know that, that like you know being rich is a good thing, and you know that you should keep on acquiring more things. That there's a kind of logic of eternal growth. There, there wasn't that sense of it in the same way, um, but. You know, people wanted to live a better life and certainly a better life relative to what had come before it. Uh, it's, it's a very relative concept. It's, it's not just about the Second World War. It's, it's also um, about all of the sacrifices that people had been asked to make for decades. You know, they, they've been asked to make de decades worth of sacrifices toward the socialist economy, toward building it, toward building this thing. And now it's supposed to start paying off a little bit. And part of that has to do with the post-war social contract. You know, millions of people have died. They've lost a lot of, you know, and, and, and that really affects their household economies because people are much more dependent on the state for all kinds of payments because they lose, of course, you know, the income that their family members would have given them. Uh, you know, as they get older, they lose the informal forms of support that their children would have given to them, which is actually a very important thing for people in the Soviet Union. And so, uh, you know, they had to do something. I think the state had to do something to make people feel like all of this was worth it. And that's where this story comes in. That leads exactly to to my next question is, and that is, you know, your a lot of your book is investigating these various aspects of the post-war social contract. And that could be anything from low prices to a stable center living to, you know, pensions, social security, a certain level of access to consumer goods. Um, give us a bit more detail about, you know, what elements of, of the, what were the elements of the social contract and how did the state try to, to address them and, and, and how did people regard this contract? Yeah, so each chapter in the book is oriented around a promise. So um, the first one's dealing with uh, with low prices, as I said, then the second one's dealing with reducing income inequality, third one's dealing with pension reform, raising pensions, because as I said, they were deeply unequal and, and very, very inadequate. The fourth chapter is dealing with um, 
with uh, take-home pay, with what you get to take home after all deductions for taxes, bonds, things like this. And then the fifth is about returns on your investments in the state. So in putting your money into state savings account, into state banks, putting your money into lottery tickets, which are weirdly considered an investment in the Soviet Union. Um, yes, they are. And, and still sometimes you see this in financial reporting coming out of Russia. Consider it lotteries are under, under uh, investment. Very odd, but I, you tend to not think that in a North American context. But uh, and and also bonds, which were a big part of um, the way that people were expected to both invest their money in the state, uh, but also it was a way of taking excess cash out of circulation, so putting it into these interest-paying bonds that they would get back later. So each each chapter is dealing with a promise, and, and and I started with prices because this was really one of the most important things coming out of the Second World War, um, and this really was a promise that was made. It was, it was a sort of burgeoning social contract, let's put it like that, in the mid-1930s. So, you know, uh, there's a sort of couple of good years that the Soviets have in the middle of the 1930s when they have a couple of good harvests. They're able to abolish rationing. And when they abolish rationing, they promise that they're going to bring down prices. Because uh, even though it's a socialist society, and this all blew my mind when I, when I started learning about this, you know, things were really expensive incredibly expensive like prices especially of consumer goods were very high you had you had certain items that were artificially cheap so bread milk things like that but that did not reflect the cost of producing those goods and that was highly dependent upon essentially squeezing them out of the countryside out of peasants for free so those prices don't necessarily reflect reality and and for consumer goods though they they were a little bit more reflective of the cost of production but they're quite expensive and you know when when you have relatively you know low salaries and prices go up then people can't buy those things and what happens during the second world war is in order partly to reduce the amount of excess cash that's in circulation and partly because there's just massive scarcity of everything prices go up so ration prices don't they stay they're frozen but nobody is really buying things at ration prices you're not buying silverware or clothes at ration prices because there's nothing to buy you're buying that in the market or you're buying it in commercial shops and in commercial shops the prices go up by like 300% it's crazy it's sometimes much higher so prices are actually very high coming out of the second world war and they're they're a touchstone of the popular discontent people are very unhappy about this in part because they had been promised not long before the war that when they abolished rationing they would start to have lower prices and they don't manage to do this they have to abandon this so prices are a big part of this but then, of course, you know, lots of people, even as they are reducing prices, they're still so high that they don't make enough money to live on. You know, they don't make enough money to uh, to buy those things. And so they have to that problem. The prices problem kind of leads them into the next problem, which is wages. Right. Which is that you have tons of people who make very low wages, who can't afford much. And you have even, you know, like a, probably in some ways a larger number of people who are pensioners who don't make enough to buy as well. So then they have to kind of tinker with that. So what, what I've tried to do with, with all of these chapters is sort of show how tangled up in each other these promises are, how tangled up in each other these problems are, um, as they're trying to deliver on the larger social contract, which is a, a better life, a more comfortable life, a more predictable life, a more stable life, um, which is fundamentally what they want to give to people. So they do try to address them. And, and one of the other things I was quite committed to doing was showing that, you know, you, you could write it, you could write this as a, as a series of sort of promises that are just empty propaganda. You're looking at all of the posters, looking at, you know, the slogans and all of this. But if you actually go and look in the economic archives, which I, I strongly believe are desperately underused in Russian history, in Urgaya, I think people should go and dig around there more often. Uh, there's a huge, rich, totally fascinating discussion going on behind the scenes amongst all these experts, amongst economists, amongst people who are, you know, they're not political leaders per se, but they're people who are consulting with them about how to actually pull this off, about how to make it work, how to how to balance the money in circulation with goods, how to tinker with tax levels. Like, you know, if we set the minimum wage too high, is this going to interfere with norms? Is this going to interfere with, you know, People's incentives to to overproduce, you know, prior to the, the wage reforms that they have in 56 or 62. So, um, so the book isn't just looking at the promises; it's also looking at the policies that they tried to deliver this through, how they how they tried to make it actually function. Um, does this? So, I mean, I don't. I, I just more curious about what your thoughts on this because it just struck me, you know, and and trying to understand what Soviet socialism was 
is this what it this idea of prosperity and providing the means of prosperity was was this what the idea of socialism how it was understood in you know everyday life it's a good question i think i think certainly after the second world war and in the context of the cold war it increasingly becomes it because this is also going on in the background too is that you have this conflict between communism and capitalism over which system is going to deliver a better standard of living to its citizens and so they have to respond to this and so it is increasingly articulated as that um, I think for a lot of ordinary people, this is also how they is what they interact with the state over, right? They this is this is their interaction with the state is through these monetized transactions, you know, your pension, your payments, taxes, the bonds you have to buy, things like this. So this is a very practical way that people interact with the socialist project, and it's also I would argue one of the ways that they become kind of disappointed in it because. You know, they're consistently being told things are going to get easier. Things are going to get better. And when they don't, people are quite angry. <laughs> they're quite predictably angry about it in the way that we all are. It, it, I, I don't want to I don't want to, you know, fetishize this in any way. You know, we're we're coming out of a pandemic. We don't know what the economic effects of this are going to be yet. We're, we're thinking about this right now, you know, whether it's going to be like inflation that screws us or whatever it is. Um, you know, people, people are mostly just trying to feed their kids and have, you know, get by, have a nice life. And, and these policies really affect them on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think one of the things that happens over the course of the period that I'm looking at is, you know, there is a little bit of optimism toward the beginning that things can get a little bit better. They, they do have a few good years again, <laughs> you know, I think between like 56 and 58, things are doing slightly better. And then by 1962, it's all gone to hell again. Um, and people start then doing a lot of their traditional responses to this. So they start hoarding goods, they start taking their money out of the bank and putting it in the mayonnaise jar and things like this. And all of this throws off the plans that make this whole thing work. Um, but, uh, but people, again, people want to have a normal life for better or worse. And, and when they can't do that, they, they blame the government. It's not that different. Amelia, do you want to jump in here? Yeah, I do. Um, and Christy, this may or may not be a question that you can answer, have uh, looked into, but I'm wondering if this same story kind of unfolds in other socialist countries and other communist countries um, around the globe. It's a really good question. Um, I know that there are certain aspects of the Soviet economy that get reproduced elsewhere. So one of the things that they they pick up uh, in other places, I mean, they have them in China, they have even in Albania is these bonds that I mentioned. So I might this might be a good place to kind of explain what I'm talking about. Uh, so one of the things that they did in the Soviet Union from about 1927 onward is you had to give one month salary to state bonds. So you would have to, typically this is done in public. It was one of these kind of crazy rituals where everyone would stand up and say like, I'm going to give 120% of my monthly salary. No, I'm going to give 150%. You, you'd have to do this. And, um, and this was seen partly as a mechanism for you know, getting people involved like physically and financially invested in building socialism. They took the money from this to build things like hydroelectric dams, stuff like this. And they had these every year until 1957 when they, freeze them and then they pay them back much later. Um, and, uh, and, you know, this was a lot of money. This is people had thousands of rubles tied up in these investments. And one of the things they start to do over time is they realize that this is actually going to throw off all of their calculations because when those bonds mature, they have to pay them all back with interest, right? And it's going to be this giant tidal wave of cash that hits the economy. And so they, they sort of they kind of squirrel their way out of it and they end up, you know, paying them back in the 70s when most people who had them were dead and all the rest. But you have very similar things that, that happened in other communist countries. And some of them borrowed this quite directly from the Soviet Union. I know they existed in China. I know that they existed um, in, in parts of Central and Eastern Europe. So you've had examples of this as well. Uh, in terms of the sort of, um, you know, the social insurance and low prices and things like this. This also was a thing throughout Central and Eastern Europe as well. You know, people um, were very dependent upon their pensions. Um, it's still the case that, you know, they, they pay the communist era pensions throughout much of this part of the world. Um, and, uh, and a lot of these same kinds of living standard guarantees became really central to what communism was, what socialism was in those places. So, 
if they're not doing exactly the same thing as the Soviets, they're that 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 idea of living standards being, you know, sort of central to what the whole thing was is there. You know, on the on the one hand, um, there, the, you know, this period is is, uh, you know, a transnational phenomenon in terms of the ideas of prosperity, the expectations of living a good life in a increasingly post-industrialist consumer society. But one of the things that strikes me um, about, and here I'm thinking back to, you know, the le letters that people write to authorities in the Soviet Union, is it seems to me that the sense of entitlement is is a lot stronger, right? The The appealing to, you know, Soviet authorities to live up to certain promises and guarantees or even, you know, understood sense of contracts seems to be really present in a lot of these appeals. And I was, I was wondering if, if you think that the sense there is a, a higher sense of entitlement. I think it increases over time. I mean, I think you, you definitely notice more of it over the period that I'm looking at. So, you know, I think you can make the argument that sacrifices are necessary in the context of the war and even before the war when it was, you know, sort of gearing up to world war because war is coming soon. Um, and that allowed the state to make a lot of um, promises and then break them and get a bit more leeway. But I think by the 1960s, uh, they were holding them to account a little bit more. I mean, the, the letters definitely become angrier, a lot more direct. I mean, part of it is, you know, people really hate Khrushchev. <laughs> and, they, and they write in with, and they're like, you know, I'll be waiting for my KGB interrogation. I've actually seen letters that where people were quite direct this way. Um, and part of it is, you know, they they saw the discrepancy between what they were being promised and what was happening on the ground, and and they got tired. And I, I sort of in, in one of the last in one of the last sentences in the book, I talk about how one of the, the fundamental problems was that you know for decades the Soviet government was promising people that they were going to have communism, and communism was going to solve all their money problems. They just weren't going to have them, and they never do this, and they're stuck with money that doesn't buy anything. And kind of a perfect symbol in so many ways of everything that went wrong. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I don't I don't read it as much as they, they feel entitled to a, a good life, but I think they feel entitled to a straight answer out of them a lot of the time. And and it's to 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 sort of this recognition that certain things are not working or that they live worse than they are promised that they will or that the propaganda depicts it as or that, you know, they, especially especially people who are outside of the major cities, right? in the more provincial areas, in the less industrialized republics, they were well aware of the discrepancy between propaganda and reality. So what what was one of the like strangest or weirdest things that you found that didn't make it into the book that you wish you could include, or at least even took you into a different direction? So I thought long and hard about this. <laughs> and, <laughs> because there, there were a lot of strange things. But yeah, we all have them. <laughs> yeah, I had like a writing list. But, uh, but probably it was that there were all of these very elaborate kind of scams that people did with lottery tickets and lottery bonds. So I found this amazing court case from I think it's right around 1953-54, where somebody was buying all of these bonds that people were forced to buy, the ones that you have to spend one month's wages on. Um, he's buying it, the bonds at well below the, the nominal value of the bonds from people. So you get the serial numbers from them. And then he was collecting the winnings. So he had thousands of them. He had basically stuffed all of the um, the spaces between the you know the walls, like the the inner wall. Well, I don't know what you call that. <laughs> the, the inner wall areas between like the plaster and the brick. You know, he had stuffed his entire house with all of these bonds. He kept all the numbers and was was basically getting them from people so that he could make some money off of these and then cash them in for um, the winnings because a lot of the bonds were guaranteed to win. So you would basically you wouldn't get your money. Your money was held for twenty years, but you would be guaranteed to win like a hundred rubles during the time that the bond during the term of the bond. So, you know, at some random point, you'd be like, oh, I want 100 rubles, great. You know, but it wasn't still the 1,000 rubles we had invested in this, something like this. But um, so you had all kinds of elaborate ways that people use those things. And then this became really problematic later because they were bearer bonds. So, you know, the fate of all of these Soviet investments and Soviet savings is not entirely settled in post-Soviet Russia. So, you know, in a lot of other republics, they're like, yeah, that wasn't us. That was a different government. And we're not responsible for paying any of that money back. Uh, it's a lot more complicated in Russia. And so I try to collect the bonds. I buy them at flea markets whenever I'm in Eastern Europe. 
And um, I can't find a lot of the ones I want because I think there's still some people who are banking on them having some value one day when they finally settle what's going to happen with them. <laughs> but you had all these parallel uses of the money. Um, and, and so basically, I, I wished I'd had more of the second economy. This ended up being a lot more about the first economy, about the above ground economy than that I'd hoped it would be. I don't know. There wasn't a natural place to bring it in. It was sort of like that. Is that because one of the difficulties of the second economy is just the the archival record? Because you get it, you can see it when you have like court cases or arrests or investigations, but otherwise it doesn't necessarily turn up. Yeah, I mean, it's it's you only really get it when people get caught. <laughs> and so you have these court cases. And, and I think a lot of people did things like this. They had sort of elaborate ways that they, they use their money. And one of the things I, I thought I was going to do initially coming into this project, because it was a lot more of a social history project, was just look at how people kind of stored their money, what they did with it in their in their daily lives. Like I remember at one point, Sheila Fitzpatrick told me a story about how when she was living with Igor Sotz back when she was, you know, being a spy in the archives. At one point, uh, he asked her if she needed any money to go out. And he just opened a drawer and it was just jammed full of money. It was just a drawer of money. And he said, just take whatever you want. And she said, really? Like, <laughs> okay. And it sort of showed this, I think, attitude of the people who, for whom money just didn't matter all that much. And, and I think those kinds of moments, I would have liked to have had more of them in, in the book. But they're, but they're not moments that show up in the archives in the same way, you know? That's that's some great. Yeah, we all have these weird instances that you're just like you find you come across a, doc, a set of documents or or even one document. And you're like, oh my god, this is gold, and it's like it just doesn't fit. <laughs> I know exactly. It's like they would make great articles, but then you go like have to figure out a way to I don't know. You have to figure out a way to make it be something different. And yeah, it's true. <laughs> and, and finally, you know, the Soviet economic system is no longer with us, um, <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> Uh, but but you certainly you certainly pointed to some of its legacies right now, like people holding on to these bonds and and the the you know Russian Federation is still trying to deal with. I know that they deal with in terms of what to do about pensions that are left over from the Soviet system. I didn't, of course, didn't know anything about bonds. Uh, so it, what do you like? What are some of the legacies of this that you'd like to have readers walk away with for understanding? You know how this continues to affect, say, you know daily modern life in, in Russia today. Yeah, I, I, the pensions is, is a big deal. I mean, when, when there were protests a couple of, of years ago, I wrote an op-ed on it and I got some like, you know, crappy comments about that for Russian readers as one does, you know, um, because of course the, the pension age was set in 1930. It was not changed for a very long time because, um, you know, they, they, they said it then and, uh, and then they got changed and this was what the source of the protests were a couple of years ago. Um, you know, I think I think one of the things that that people didn't quite understand in thinking about those pensions is you know that the discourse around pensions is a little bit specific in the Russian case because you know I talk about this in my book the way that you got a pension in the Soviet Union it wasn't like you paid into your pension over the course of your working life the way that we might have deductions off our salaries in fact they actually promised that they would never do that with Soviet citizens salaries that they would not take money off for it your pension was a reward for your lifetime of disciplined labor or your sacrifices, right? Because you get pensions for your dead family members, for people who died in the war or who died on the job. So it was a reward. And so it's a very different type of interaction with the state when they change the terms of that, when this is your reward for things you've done for it, as opposed to something that you've invested in, right? And they've really struggled to switch over to a system in which people invest into the pension. Like, and then they get it back later. Partly it has to do with what they do with the funds once they're in the bank and all of that, right? People are quite worried about investing in something and then it just gets nationalized and it's like, what's well, gone, right? So there's that too. Um, so they had to create this parallel system after the, after the collapse of communism. It's very complicated. I really don't want to go into the details because there's no way to sex up pension reform. There just isn't. Um, but uh, they basically created parallel systems for people who were born before a certain year who got those old Soviet pensions and then people after had to invest in, in the different ones because they, they, because that, that discourse around pensions is still quite prominent. Um, I would say also, you know, you have real problems with, with the stability of the ruble to the present day. I mean, uh, when I was in... 
Moscow in 2014, 2015 on my postdoc, I had a, a little taste myself of what you're not supposed to do when there's a currency crisis, uh, which is that the, the value of the ruble plummeted, right? This is after the annexation of Crimea, there's sanctions and there are all kinds of, it's just going haywire. I remember walking down Prospect Mira one day and, you know, they have all those currency exchanges along the street and, and some of them were just like zero. We're just like the ruble zero. We're not giving out any other currency. It's like it's, it's Nothing. It's not happening. Um, but I was in the archives. I was I was digging around in, in Argaia that day, and um, and I was I was reading this on my phone. And there was also that app that someone created for a while, where it was just the exchange value of the ruble against the backdrop of of like a, an ocean's wave just kind of moving. It was like this. It was, I think it's called like Ruble Zen or something like this. So I'm looking at all of this. I'm in the archives, and I thought. I gotta go get some euros. <laughs> I gotta go get some dollars. I'm gonna go. And I went to the bank machine and it didn't work. I couldn't pull out any rubles. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and this is not what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to wait until it stabilizes. But I didn't do it. But I thought, you know, this is this is something that people had to live with for quite a long time in this country. Is you know their money being converted very suddenly. It's not even just in the Soviet period. We had this in the '90s too, right? The ruble collapsed. There was currency crisis. They had to institute a new ruble. You had all the problems coming out of the Soviet period where the ruble was legal tender in 13 countries now and just disaster. Um, and, and people worked around it in all kinds of ways and still do, and still do work around the, the fact that money isn't always as valuable as it, as it should be. It's not as stable or as predictable as it should be in this part of the world. Um, and so I think that's definitely a legacy of this. Have, has, has doing this project changed your influence, your attitude towards money? Oh, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think I, I wrote most of it when I was a poor grad student. So I don't know if that really affected my overall attitude toward it. Uh, <laughs> and now I'm in Canada. The Canadian dollar is always, you know, like its purchasing power outside of Canada is pretty limited. Uh, I, I mean, I think um, I think it definitely maybe made me a little bit more cognizant of, of some of my my great privileges and just not having to think about it. And not having to think about money in my life that way, but whether or not it was going to be something I could use when I went to the store or my savings might be just eviscerated overnight, that, that, that is a great privilege, <laughs> to put it bluntly. So it made me think about that. That was Christy Ironside. Christy Ironside is an assistant professor of history at McGill University, where she studies and writes about the political, economic, and social history of modern Russia and of the Soviet Union. Her new book is titled A Full Value Ruble, The Promise of Prosperity in the Post-War Soviet Union. And that book is published in 2021 by Harvard University Press. So we just listened to this fascinating interview uh, about money and welfare and social security in the post-war Soviet Union. And I, I have to say, like, I don't know, I didn't know any of this, particularly with the money situation. And, and I was with the stereotype that money didn't matter in the Soviet Union. And, and Christy, you know, shows quite, quite well that, well, that question it is, it, well, it depends on who you are. <laughs> um, so what, what are some th thoughts that you had in, in terms of what did you learn and find surprising? Yeah, uh, well, I guess I had, you know, your most basic bottom level, like American anti-communist stereotype just pounded into my head, which of course is that there is no money in a communist society. Money does not exist. And so the, within the first five minutes of the interview, I was surprised because it turns out, oh, well, money actually does exist in the Soviet Union and it was used to acquire goods and services. Um, so that basic premise was a huge surprise to me. But a few other things that came up were like lotteries. And um, I, I found it very interesting how the government financially, monetarily subsidized commodities um, like bread and milk and stuff like this. And in much the same way that are that the US government does now. And of course I live in the US, so that's what I'm familiar with. But it's very similar to the way that the US government subsidizes the dairy industry and farming and these kinds of industries here. So I found that super fascinating. If if you didn't know there was money in the Soviet Union, how did you how did you imagine people got stuff? <laughs> um that's a really good question. And now that you ask it, <laughs> I think what I thought was that 
there were vouchers and for for food primarily and like rationing cards yeah yeah exactly i think i thought that it was lots of rationing and um also uh that the government just gave people what they needed and which is very interesting because there was always this kind of um a little issue in my head that I could never reconcile, but I just decided to not think about it too hard, which was like the design standards, like the interior design standards and the companies that existed and like the relics that exist now that were Soviet items that are, you know, very Soviet that existed in people's apartments, the, um, the clocks and the wallpaper and the curtains and these things, which are super identifiable. Um, and I, I honestly never thought about like, how did people get those so right um, I, I mean this this is why i'm asking you the question because i i had similar ideas but i never really thought of okay well if they don't have money then how did they get stuff and i think i i had s- the same kind of stereotypes uh where i just thought well you know in american in america we believe that uh soviet people just stood in line all day and uh there was never enough and it was they were barely surviving and so there wasn't really like a market in the sense of like exchanging goods in terms of, you know, you have money and you buy something. I also, I think, assumed that, you know, many years ago, I, since it's been a long time since I thought that just to be clear to, to <laughs> listeners, <laughs> um, uh, that, you know, it it was basically this kind of like either barter system or this system of, uh, you know, state like handout, like not handouts, but state um, rationing. Let's put it to you that way. So I was, I, I really like this issue of money and I'm really, you know, I really like this discussion about money and I'm really glad that Christy devoted so much time to study it because I think it's a, you know, it's a really important thing um, for us to know about because we, we have so many stereotypes. I mean, even people who, you know, or know the Soviet Union, its history pretty well, they might not have known or thought of these things. Yeah, absolutely. And as a person that does not know Soviet history very well, I definitely haven't thought of or have have I known these things. <laughs> and they're really important, like especially, you know, we kind of exist at this time where things are changing really rapidly, where there's some opportunities for like rethinking some of our systems. And okay, it kind of turns out that getting rid of money is, it either didn't work or it's completely impossible. And so that's a good thing to know moving forward. And and the other thing I was, I was struck by, or I like to always be reminded of this, and that is the sense, the idea of prosperity in the Soviet Union was not all that different than, you know, the notion of prosperity, say, in America or anywhere else. It's It's all based on having a comfortable life, having a good life for your children. You know, I'm not talking about like the need to be rich. I'm just talking about the need to, as you started out in the podcast by saying, you know, I want money, but I also want to be in a situation where I have enough of it, mm-hmm. where I don't think mm-hmm. about it. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's, and I think that's the aspiration of mm-hmm. most people. Yeah, absolutely. I would absolutely agree. Except for those few people that really, really like playing with it in the stock market. There's a few. Yeah, well... <laughs> yeah, well, one can say that that's just a, a more acceptable form of gambling. <laughs> one can certainly say that. <laughs> so, well, I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and I'm joined by Amelia Parler. And the SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. And as always, uh, we'd love to have your support. Um, the SRB podcast is a nonprofit educational endeavor. And it relies on the support of individuals and other institutions to keep it completely free to listeners and free from any advertisements, paywalls, restrictions, etc. You know, we're not going on a subscription model. Uh, So please keep it that way by joining the table of ranks and giving a contribution every month. Uh, And also, please, if you enjoy this podcast, share it on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, Uh, write a review on iTunes. That's really helpful for us. So until next time, bye.
Class and end up feeling sick. 